I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Yes, indeedy. I wrote graffiti on the bus. Your man, Manny Faces, rocking with you one time. This week in Social Justice, brought to you by the News Podcast, an exceptional mix of social justice journalism, highfalutin social justice journalism, I might say, mixed with uh-huh. independent music, hip-hop, artistry, uh, and two funky brothers named Rashed Mian and Chris Kowarski, managing editor and the editor-in-chief, respectively, of the almighty Newsweek podcast and its sister show this week in social justice. Hello, gentlemen. Start your electronic engines. What up? What up? What's up, Manny? Love Where the jersey. The hell, where the hell you at? Thank you, sir. Uh, still represent my New York Knickerbockers and those who are watching on the feed can see. Look at that. This guy. That I paid extra. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time it was delivered, they were out of the playoffs. So, custom jersey, fun. So, listen, uh, I am actually at a secret location, unbeknownst to most people. It is a secret bunker known to a few people as the compound, recording and broadcasting live and direct from the band called Fuse compound secret headquarters to our brethren in musical arms the band called fuse of course you might know us uh, for our podcast uh, you might be listening on the podcast feed and you know our full episodes include independent rap artists uh, contributing their brilliance to social justice issues of the day uh, silent night our artist of residence is one of the front folks for the band called fuse the band called fuse has created original music for a couple of our episodes uh why we riot the award-winning episode that put us on the map i would say and also um the year-end joint the end of the second season the funeral uh journalism oh. future of journalism all oh, right the future of journalism that's right so the band called fuse mighty mighty fusion band out of uh, new york uh new, new jersey so new york area but new jersey and uh and surrounding areas uh we are here uh, hiding out in their uh dugout they don't know we're here, so I'm going to rifle through their stuff. Uh, but anyway, shouts to them. Shouts for uh, it's all the musicians getting back to uh, music and live performances uh, after this horrific pandemic year that has uh, silenced so many of our wonderful artists. And here we are. I know we keep our, our drinks to the side, but I think we could cheers to that at least. All right. Salute. Salute. Cheers. To everyone coming back. And salute to the band called Fuse, Silent Night, who is actually hiding off on the side. I was in downtown right. New Brunswick, New Jersey, doing some DJ things, and I appreciated uh, being able to uh, rock out of the compound so that we could still bring you this week in social justice. Now, let's get to it. Uh, it is important. We have a lot of things to cover this week. We have a guest coming up. Uh, is that true? I believe we have a fantastic guest talking about a very timely and important issue. Yeah. So we have Dr. Lewis Hearns Marcellin, who's a professor of anthropology and director of global health studies at the University of Miami. And he also runs a group out of Haiti. And I'm sure uh, many people have heard that the president of Haiti was assassinated yesterday. It's not the first assassination in Haiti's history. Uh, Not, uh, you know, I think there was over seven of those within a four year span. I think there were over 70 dictatorships in Haiti, and he's going to be speaking about the United States' uh, involvement in Haiti. It is an ongoing thing. Tisk, uh, tisk, tisk. 
Indeed. All right. Good. I like to get some insight as to, you know, we hear these things happen and uh, we might turn to our foreign affairs programming on TV and hear a bunch of talking heads talking and doing all the talking head thing. Uh, but you know that the Newsbeat crew and our esteemed guests will bring it to you. Uh, straight no chaser. No, I mean, in the meantime, in That's between right. time, let, let's get into it. We will start off the show with our typical uh, way that we start off the show. It is with our Newsbeat News Bites. Let's go. <laughs> So, all right. I think I'm going to start that one. Kick it off, my friend. All right. So, uh, oftentimes I start with something horrific. And so the trend continues. But um, Prison <laughs> Policy Initiative, which we cite a lot in on this show and in the podcast, and we've had sources from Prison Policy on to discuss these issues for you guys. Uh, they released a report uh, in June. I, can't, I was about to say this month. I can't believe it's July. They released a, a report in June that said suicides – are up 22% from uh, in inside, inside prisons um, in 2018 as compared to 2016. There's a lag in the information, the data coming out because uh, prisons are just notoriously slow and states are notoriously slow at getting that information out and some localities don't even provide the information. But it just shows that the horrific toll prisons uh, take on people. So yeah. prisons are up, like I said, prisons are up 22% in that two-year span. Also, Unbelievably, deaths by drugs and alcohol intoxication are up an astounding 139% in that same two-year time span. And I'm going to read from the report. Yeah, yeah, just in the two years. And you see that. So people who are watching the stream, you can see the graph. And it just it looks like a huge spike. It looks like, you know, one of those COVID spikes that we saw last year, um, which is insane. And the report obviously doesn't touch on that because it's, it's 2018. Um, but uh, according to a report, in 2018, state prisons saw the highest number of suicides, 340, since the Bureau of Justice Justice Statistics began collecting this data 20 years ago. So compared to the 1% net growth of state prison populations, since that time, suicides, suicides have increased by a shocking 85%. So uh, populations have only increased by 1%, but there's a huge increase in suicides. So it, I think it's just something that people need to pay attention to. Uh, this is related somewhat to another episode we're working on for, for the podcast feed. But yeah, I think it's always important, especially with COVID, um, how we tried to, you know, uh, keep abreast of what was happening inside those institutions because they um, are known for poor healthcare and inadequate healthcare. Um, just to see these numbers, uh, people are essentially getting sentenced for nonviolent or misdemeanor crimes and are then having a a death sentence, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about uh, so many things play play into this. Uh, the, the money bail, the cash bail system. Everyone knows the story of Khalif Browder. Um, but this is not the, the these big cases you hear about aren't one offs. <clears throat> They're happening all over. Uh, probably, I don't know. Probably, I, can't, I don't want to say. Uh, but what what effect that COVID had on this uh, number? And also, what effect? There's a fact that you just said it. Not all municipalities report numbers. We, we've had we've talked to people about uh, trying to gauge how COVID has affected incarcerated uh, folks. And we not not everyone's reporting the numbers. Some places, you know what I mean? Like, so there's this constant problem with being able to judge and gauge what's happening in our prison populations because the prison population controls don't give the data. Like, that's an ongoing theme that I keep hearing come up. Yeah. And, yeah. We'll be, yeah, and we'll be talking a little bit more about the lack of transparency in prisons and jails a little bit later Got on. It. All right, right on. Thank you, Rashad, for bringing that to uh, our attention. This is a, uh, a, a, 
I mean, a tragic story and a and a and a weirdly timely story. Um, Minneapolis police uh, were conducting a high speed chase through apparently, and I'm, I'm I'm saying I haven't gotten all the information verified or whatever. It's in the news and such. A residential neighborhood uh, struck a car, chasing a car, struck another car. Someone who was not involved in the chase, just a you know random ass car, <laughs> you know, just yeah. kind of you know going through life, and and killed the man inside, who tragically and, and ironically and you know horribly co- coincidentally happens to be the uncle of Darnella Frazier who was the young woman who filmed the death of George Floyd uh you know the one who got that footage that obviously sparked so much in our world uh it's it's crazy that this happened it's it's not a you know it wasn't a so the police ended up killing her uncle in a way and you know rest in peace and uh it wasn't sort of an interaction sort of thing, but it's still horribly tragic and ironic. And Rashad, as we're told, as, as his news came over, he looked up a couple things and there is, as we like to do tie in, there's a tie in to overall policing and sort of maybe the irresponsibility uh, that has, uh, you know, permeated police departments across the country. What did you find as we heard this terrible news uh, that actually ties into a larger, perhaps uh, a larger problem. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time, so I'll keep it qu- uh, quick. But this is something that's come up a lot in, um, you know, police reform issues. The idea of these high-speed chases, um, that these high-speed uh, pursuits by police. Um, the McClatchy reported on, on a study that was done that showed that at least 416 people were kill- killed in police chases in 2017, which is crazy. That, I mean. I, I I don't even know how many police chases there are on a regular day, but that that seems like a crazy number, four to sixteen. But right. from nineteen seventy nine through twenty seventeen, thirteen thousand people have been killed. That's an average of three hundred thirty six. Oh and they also found a spike in recent years in these cases. So that average goes up to like three hundred ninety nine deaths per year. Um, but again, just something to pay attention to. Maybe we could flesh it out in a later streamer episode. But these police chases often end in violence. And innocent bystanders are killed because of them. And obviously, you hear this a lot, but police departments then go ahead and blame the person they were chasing rather right. than taking responsibility for pursuing people like this, even though we know they have surveillance technologies that could help find these people if they really wanted to. Yeah. And this is despite also some uh, supposed efforts to try to you know, mitigate some of the dangers in police chases, which uh, has been said to be one of the most dangerous police activities. Uh, they've been trying to make some changes or try to do some things like train. It's like we, they, they do something crazy and they'd be like, well, we've been training them. And like, well, if you were training yeah. them, then maybe these things wouldn't happen. Uh, all right. We'll follow that story. Uh, just crazy set of circumstances, unfortunately. Uh, Chris, your news bite, sir. Yeah. So this is something um, staying with the topic of indigenous schools in Canada. And, uh, and on our last episode, uh, for listeners um, who might want to tune back in and go back and, and check it out, um, we broke down sort of the, the history of this. And, and in a nutshell, there were over 150,000 indigenous children who were taken uh, from their families by the Canadian government and put in these so-called residential schools that were run by religious denominations majority the catholic church and you know you see these headlines recently about these unmarked graves and these mass graves of children being found 
And that's, that's what, what this is. Uh, these children, there are thousands of them who never made it home. There's thousands of them still missing. And there's an active search going on right now to try to locate these mass burial, burial sites. And so I came across the story and it's, you know, a little bit of a, a more positive story. Um, it's, it's all connected with this, that in 2015, uh, Canada actually had this commission uh, that released a report and they were called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they put forth 92 recommendations of how the country can heal. And one of them was to give back these families their ancestral names, because as soon as, as soon as someone is put in one of these schools, their hair was cut and they were renamed and given a Christian name. And uh, what I left out of last episode, which is insane also, is that they were, uh, besides a Christian name, they were given a number. And oh. a, lot of, a lot of these kids went through, you know, years, if they survived these, these, uh, these torture schools, um, they were just referred to as a number. And so Canada just recently, uh, uh, earlier this month, last week actually, uh, is, is, is moving forth with one of these recommendations that will actually uh, be able to give these families back their names. It's only good, the offer is only good until, from what I understand, for uh, until 2026, um, which is insane as well. I mean, um, but uh, they'll waive all the fees associated with giving back the family their name on government-issued identification so uh, right. i mean I, you know and call, this woman now operators are standing <laughs> yeah, by right. it's Seriously. yeah <laughs> um so you know i don't as you said we cover so many horrific atrocities on this show i just figured you know something a little bit toward the positive at least they're getting their names back i mean wow uh, that is positive i joke uh but you know for them to like limited time only Seriously. you know Columbus Day sale. Gets your- it's it's uh, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Chris. I tell you, you've opened up uh, my eyes and a lot of listeners' eyes to all the atrocities happening uh, with the Canadian residential schools, uh, the way they've treated the Indigenous folk, uh, how American have Americans have uh, treated not just Indigenous folk, but you know, people of color, uh, their legacy, their bones, their you know, their history. Um, so we're looking at all of these things, and I know you'll stay on it. So thanks for that. All right, let's go. Uh, We are going to get into a couple of segments. Don't forget, we are speaking about Haiti tonight. And uh, there obviously is world news, but you know that we always try to take our news beat angle and uh, bring you some different insights. We have a guest coming up who will break some things down for us. In the meantime, let's talk about uh, the issues we have uh, on the plate today. Uh, Rochette, I think you're up first, yeah? Yeah, so I know viewers and listeners probably have been uh, paying attention to what's going on in Capitol Hill, Hill, especially with this infrastructure plan, this right. so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan. Um, and I'm, I'm going to sort of take us through it really quick. It, it involves the infrastructure plan, what it does not include now, and how that impacts um, you know marginalized communities who are disproportionately impacted by climate change. And also these new revelations from Exxon, these amazing leaks that came out last week that shows the lies and also the way in which the fossil fuel industry controls our politicians. So I guess I'll start. Yeah, I guess I'll start back in March. So if you guys remember, that's when Biden proposed this enormous 
uh, American jobs plan, as he called it. I think it was $2 trillion and it would have created many jobs, which was especially needed after the pandemic. And it was going to make improvements to the infrastructure and, and address climate change in many different ways, ways through clean energy, through investments in electric vehicles, um, you know, capping um, uh, some fossil fuel and, and coal mines. And what, this all this is all encompassing to tackle cl the climate crisis, and the bill would have gone a long way to dealing with pollution, which is huge and it impacts, as I said, uh, a marginalized community the most. And so, this is from a, a report that was released um, uh, by a research institute, and it, I'm going to quote from it. It said President Biden's plan calls for 50 billion dollars for improving infrastructure resiliency across the electric grid, food systems, health systems, urban infrastructure, and transportation infrastructure. They go, it goes on to say that climate change disproportionately affects marginalized communities, and part of the plan focuses on building resilient infrastructure in vulnerable communities most at risk to the climate impacts. Now, they looked at what would hap what happen now that they have this so-called bipartisan plan. It says scrapping these key elements would not only make it impossible for the U.S. to meet its commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% uh, by 2030, but it would also miss enormous opportunities for cleaner air, quality jobs, and resilient communities. So one of the biggest cuts to the so-called, I keep saying so-called, uh, and you're going to find out why in a, in a, in a minute, uh, the so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan is it concerns electronic transportation. So the initial legislation was, was proposed to provide up to almost $200 billion in investments and tax credits. So regular people, you and I, potentially, if we had enough money, can go out and purchase an electric vehicle uh, to, you know, for, to reduce our our. Um, our price on, our, on gasoline and also to help the environment. And that was huge because pollution disproportionately impacts the communities of color. And Manny, uh, oh no, I think I got rid of that link, so you don't have to worry about that. But um, according to the American Lung Association, they said far too often clean air is out of reach for communities living near major pollution sources, including highways, uh, power plants, and community colors are disproportionately harmed by poor air quality in the United States. And the time to act on electronic transportation is now. So for example, America's bus fleet is largely run by diesel, right? And that's extremely harmful. And part of the plan would have went ahead and electrified these uh, these buses, would have been huge for um, communities where people potentially don't afford, can't afford uh, cars themselves and rely on public transportation, especially school busing to get to schools. And that pollution, it, is extremely harmful to these kids. Uh, the original plan also would have funded modernization and sustainable solutions for buildings and housing. Um, this is incredible and I couldn't believe it when I saw it, but according to the EPA, uh, residential and commercial buildings represent about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. So just think about a dense city and what that means for people living in there and the emissions that are being, are being sucked out into the sky uh, because of it. So. Funding in the original infrastructure plan, funding for this part of the proposal went from over $300 billion to zero. They just stripped the entire plan. And, you know, it would have driven down, that was huge because it would have driven down energy costs for low income people. And low income people, again, it just this is part of this theme it impact, uh, how climate change and rising heat impacts marginalized communities the most. Um, those people are more burdened by high energy bills than anybody else. So uh, there was a stat um, from one report that found that the average energy burden for black households is 43% higher than their white counterparts. So what that means basically is, is these people are, are having to devote more of their income 
um, to energy than other people in this country. And this would have had a direct impact on those people. But again, this so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan gutted that. Um, so as you know, there's, there's so many other aspects of climate change. And, uh, uh, I mean, of the infrastructure bill that I hope people check out and what it would have meant. We don't have time to cover it all. Um, but that brings us to the Exxon report. And this is done. This was, um, revealed by unearthed, which is the media investigative journalism arm of, uh, an environmental group out of the UK called Greenpeace. And Manny, I think that we have that link if you want to pull it up because they basically did an investigative sting where they did something that no other journalist basically has ever been able to accomplish. And they got these lobbyists that represent Exxon to admit that they only support things like carbon taxing because they know lawmakers and Congress will never pass it. So it's just a facade. They want to act like they um, care about climate change when they really don't. And some of these admissions, this was like a mock... Uh, job interview, right, or something like that? What, didn't the guy? Yeah, think I think. Kinda, yeah, I think they thought they potentially for a job interview, right? Um, so people are like, "Oh, maybe they embellished," but um, but but this tracks with other things that have happened that we can now connect the dots, right? So, uh, man, if you want to play this one, so this first video has to do with the so-called carbon tax, um, and this is the lobbyist named Keith McCoy uh, for ExxonMobil. You know, nobody is going to to propose a tax on all Americans. Um, and, 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 and the cynical side of me says, yeah, we kind of know that. Um, but it gives us a talking point that we can say, well, what is ExxonMobil for? Well, we're for a carbon tax. What you said was just really interesting. So what? So it's basically never going to happen, right, is the calculation? Yeah. No, it's not, it's not going to. A carbon tax isn't going to happen. So this helps me understand a little bit why suddenly a lot of car- a lot of U.S. oil majors are talking about a carbon tax because it sounds pretty. Uh, well, I, 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 the cynical side of me, they've got nothing else. So it's a, um, it's 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 an easy talking point yeah. to say. Um, look, I'm for a carbon tax. So, so that, that's the talking point. That, that is a, in my mind, an effective advocacy tool. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, so it's a 10-minute investigative video. I hope everybody uh, watches the whole thing because it's, it's crucial to understanding um, how the influential people in America drive our policies. So he's calling, talking about the carbon tax in this segment, right? Um, and then I think I have a link from CNBC. So you can see oh, yeah. uh, in March, I think it was March of this year, the American Petroleum Institute, which is one of these so-called like shadow groups that is mentioned in this report, they, they come out and the media does this lavish um, uh, sort of praise uh, about them for here, here's the, the headline. American Petroleum Institute endorses carbon pricing as oil and gas industry faces pressure on emissions. It's incredible because they don't actually really believe it. And in this article, it shows how ExxonMobil and a bunch of other fossil fuel companies met with the Biden administration to tell them how they are for a carbon tax when they're straight up lying to them 
now that we now we know they're lying to the Biden administration about them supporting a carbon tax, which is incredible. So what does this all, all have to do with the infrastructure plan? There's another vi- part of this video, uh, if you want to go back to the unearthed um, investigation, where McCoy talks about influencing United States senators, and he names names, which is incredible. He names a bunch of people who were part of these so-called bipartisan uh, negotiations for the new infrastructure bill, and basically how they essentially own them. Uh, so we're talking about Joe Manchin, talking yep. about Kristen Cinema. Um, so play that. We're playing defense because the President Biden is talking about this big infrastructure package, and he's going to pay for it by increasing corporate taxes. You stick the highways and bridges, then a lot of the the negative stuff starts to come out because right. for you guys, because there's it's, there's a germaneness, right? There's this it, it, that doesn't make any sense for a highway bill. Why why would you put in why would you put in a uh, uh, something on uh, uh, emissions reductions on climate change uh, to oil refineries in a highway bill. Who's the crucial guys for you? Well, Senator Capito, who is the uh, who chairs the uh, uh, Senate, uh, who's the ranking member of Environment and Public Works. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week. Um, he is the kingmaker uh, on this because he's a Democrat from West Virginia, which is a very conservative state. Um, so he is, uh, and, and he's not shy about sort of staking his claim early yeah. and completely changing the debate. So, so, so on the Democrat side, we look for the moderates mm-hmm. on these issues. So it's the mansions, it's the cinemas, it's the testers. Um, other so, ones that aren't talking yeah. about is Senator Coons, who has a very close relationship in Delaware, who has a very close relationship with Senator Biden. So we've been working with his office. Matter of fact, our CEO is talking to him next Tuesday. <laughs> it's amazing what they're yeah. saying. Mm. They got them to say in this. Uh, he, he says it with a smirk, that, that, that smirk, that grin on his face and just so matter of factly like. Yeah, there's another, uh, we won't go into running out of time, but there's, a, yeah. there's another person, lobbyist they interview, when they ask about what they got out of the Trump administration, the guy literally just starts laughing because they got everything they wanted from the Trump administration. I, I wanted to show everybody this video if you haven't seen it already, just to, as an example of how America works for corporate interests and these high-powered companies. They are not working for the American people. The, the bipartisan, so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan, if you read a story or if you re- listen to a story about it and this isn't mentioned, then the media is not doing uh, its due diligence in reporting the story because it wasn't just these people sitting in a room came up with this. It's people like Exxon and uh, I'm sure there was other fossil fuel firms that were involved in this. Um, and it's just part of this larger deception. One last thing I will say is that the, the, the fossil fuel industry is not stupid. They've been doing this for decades. They're the ones that came up with this idea of your personal carbon footprint, this marketing mm-hmm. plan that actually won advertising awards to show that, <laughs> it, the, 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 the car, that climate change is up to you uh, to fix, oh, not us. You can prevent forest fires and carbon. Right. So, yeah. So I just want to lay this all out to show how this plan came to be. Uh, the fossil fuel industry's involvement, and just to be skeptical whenever you're reading stories about so-called bipartisan bills from Washington. Fantastic segment, Rashad.
Wow. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, um, it's much needed. It's much needed, especially during a time where that we, we see places heating up like never before. As we've covered many times and who gets, you know, the, the short end of that stick all the time, the already uh, disadvantaged. So, so, so our guest is here. Um, I just want to quickly just mention the next, the next, uh, the next uh, segment here that we did, yeah, uh, which is just real briefly. Uh, just the New York Times had a had a piece out today uh, called "The Real Toll from Prison COVID Cases Maybe Higher Than Reported," um, and they did a, a probe. And uh, surprise, surprise, they found uh, non transparency. Uh, Manny, like you said at the top of the at the top of the hour here, um, and. You know, tragically, uh, they're reporting over 2,700 people uh, who've, who've died uh, due to COVID in connection with U.S. prisons. And this is obviously a subject that we've covered um, several times. And we actually, on one of our episodes, had, I believe it was Sharon Dolovich uh, from UCLA School of Law, who told us, um, quote, there are 3,200 county jails and the vast majority of them are reporting no information. Um, one of the things that I have been extremely troubled by since this pandemic started is the lack of transparency, and she called it a culture of secrecy. <laughs> so the numbers are are likely much, much higher. Well, we talked about it earlier, and I think that's one of the major problems. That, you know, we've talked about this a million times. We'll probably talk about it again. Uh, but you can't solve the – you can't improve. Let's forget to solve the problems. Uh, you can't improve a situation, any situation in your job. You know, my wife works with, in a corporate setting, and they have KPIs, right? You have KPIs because you want to track performance issues, find problems, you know, find ways to solve them, look for the log jams, all the things. You need the data. And just another example – of the law enforcement or, or, or powers that be refusing to let themselves be policed by, by making it difficult to find out exactly what's going on. So we have covered it before. Uh, you will look on usnewsbeat.com or in our podcast feed. Again, we are doing this uh, live video live stream this week in Social Justice every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern on the social platforms that you see, but we are also throwing these audio feeds onto our podcast feed. Uh, and we have done many episodes that are not just us sitting around uh, bringing you uh, all this information, but also deep dive investigative journalism that goes deep into these issues. Uh, we've touched upon the COVID-19 in jails and prisons. We had a, a Dr. Homer Venters who came on in March of 2020 warning people that the death toll in jails and prisons was going to be an astronomically difficult problem to deal with. And then it happened. Uh, we were way ahead of this game. Our people know the issues and we know how to bring them to you. So uh, you can go back and get a broader perspective as to how it's all played out. And uh, we will continue to follow and bring these stories to light. Thank you, Chris, for bringing that to our attention. And following up, we follow up on these things. Hey, I'm too big. I don't want to be that hmm. big. Okay, I'm there. All right. Ah, so uh, now that I've plugged the podcast again, reminded people who are watching the video that we're also a podcast. We're primarily a podcast, but we're doing this because we can't sit around and wait uh, in between episodes to tell you all of the things that are happening that affect us uh, in a social justice through a, through a social justice lens that includes very large and uh, 
you know, earth shattering in some ways uh, news and events that happen not only on our shores, but because we're America, we're usually connected to a lot of things that happen outside of our shores. And to talk about that today, we have a guest. Uh, gentlemen, who are we speaking to and why is it so important that we do so tonight? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're very happy to welcome Dr. Lewis Hearns Marcellin. Uh, he's a professor of anth anthropology and director of global health studies at the University of Miami. He also runs a group down in Haiti. Uh, he's the executive committee chair and chancellor of the Inter-University Institute for Research and Development. And um, we're so pleased to have him. And one of the reasons, uh, uh, you know, as, as Manny mentioned, we, we cover human rights, you know, we, civil rights, human rights uh, internationally. You know, uh, Martin Luther King said that, uh, you know, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And, and um, you know, we, like, we, uh, we pride ourselves on shining a light on, on issues and topics you're just not going to hear in mainstream media. And Haiti is one of them. Uh, there's the United States has a long and complex history with Haiti, and you're just not going to see that uh, or read about that in these in these news reports. So, Professor, so, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. That's a great pleasure to be able to participate in your on your podcast. And um, so, again, so we like to shine a light on issues that uh, the general population in the United States just don't get from mainstream media. And so, I was wondering if you could just break down a little bit of the U.S. Uh, history with Haiti, and uh, if you could put this assassination into some context for listeners and viewers. Thank you very much, again, for giving me this opportunity. And I think that the, the American viewers deserve to have a, in, an in-depth understanding as to what is happening, because in the mainstream media, the way they treat this, they treat it as an event on its own, as if there is no history there is no process, and Haiti is a troubled country. Each time that you hear from Haiti, about Haiti, it's about misery, poverty, and violence. So this is what you see. But behind what you see, you have much more than that that is going on. Uh, we will remember that uh, Haiti was controlled by the United Nations uh, for more than 15 years after the coup d'etat against Aristide. So, uh, from 2015 until uh, 2019, a uh, minister was the sole power that, uh, you know, which mission was to help Haiti organize its institutions, organize its security institutions, its rule of law institutions, in a way so that democracy and democratic uh, politics can be possible, and also in a way so that the uh, human life can be protected and, you know, a market can be created and prosperity, you know, can be advanced, you know, and human development can be possible. Minispa spent two, uh, 15 years in Haiti. When they left Haiti, they left Haiti without any of these institutions they were supposed to help us build. And then what they did, what they left us with Minugis, which is a new version of United Nations minister. Uh, that new version, the objective of that new version and the mandate of this new version was to help Haiti strengthen his rule of law apparatus. That means its justice system, its prison system, and uh, it's uh, all the judici judiciary processes so that rule of law can exist and Haitians can have access to justice. 
again, until today, Minijus is in Haiti, and you can see a series of events that have been happening without any serious interventions from the or commentary from the international community on the, the state of city of the state of the situation in Haiti. So what you have here, you have under the, the eyes of all the Western powers, including the United States, uh, during the latter two to three years, we have a government that has been governing by decree, that have been uh, destabilizing most of the key institutions that will serve as balance of power within the country. For example, we no longer have a parliament. Nobody said anything. We no longer have a judiciary no longer said anything. The, the president of the Supreme Court in Haiti, you know, died about a, a two or three weeks ago of COVID. It was not replaced. And there is no process for that. And the minister, the prime minister that we have, in fact, we don't have just one prime minister. You may hear that we're having competing prime ministers because they have named another uh, a, a acting prime minister, you know, a two, two days or three days ago. And now the president is dead, assassinated. And uh, you have an a, a, an acting prime minister that is not an acting prime minister and one that has been promised to be prime minister, nominated, but hasn't been sworn in. So the situation we are in is a situation in which that rule of law has been destabilized and corruption has been destabilized. And all of this under the noise of a, a international community, United Nations, the United States, Canada. So what happens with the death of the president it may be shocking, but it's not a surprise because we already knew during the last two years and particularly during the last three months, there was a buildup of gangs, a fragmentation of society, a use, constant use of gang in politics to attack enemies. And when I say that, I'm not talking just about, you know, the criminal gangs that are acting out just because they are acting out. I'm talking about politicians, including those who are in government and outside of government, using gangs as political arguments, as political tools in order for them to achieve their objective. So what I'm saying here is something systemic that has gangrene Haiti, the Haitian society. And beside that, you have also in the you know market sector, in the, in the private sector, each of the big families in Haiti, they have a gang. There's a gang, when there is a competition, they send the gang after you. Wow. When they want to attack somebody who wants to bring a new idea, they send somebody to kill you. So the Haiti has been like that. Why? Because we have been taken in charge by the international community. And uh, as if you are taking in charge a baby, and uh, what, they, what they left after they, uh, after they stayed in the country for all these years is just that empty promises with institutions that are incapable of fulfilling its prophecy, what they were supposed to do. So the problem that we have with the killing of the president is not just an accidental killing. It's not just because Haiti is violent. Haiti doesn't know how to govern itself. Is that there is a culture, there is an infrastructure that maintains that violence in Haiti. And it is supported by the international community. If it is not supported actively, it is supported by their silences because all these things were happening, you know, and they keep saying, you have to respect the legitimacy of the government, you have to have new elections, yet, you know, the situation of gang violence may put people in a position in which everybody is sheltered at home. Uh, Professor, we always, what we always try to do, especially with, um, you know, sort of international stories, is 
to try to get an idea of why America and why Americans need to, you know, think about what's happening in Haiti and the importance of that. Um, so can you just talk about that? And maybe briefly, if you could just talk about the history um, where obviously you had the Haitian uh, revolution and there at the same time, you had potential slave results happening in the United States, um, but there was efforts to suppress that, that the Haitian news. So, you know, people in this, so the slaves in this country wouldn't exercise their powers and revolt. Can you just talk about some of that? Yes. And then, so all of these have their roots very deep in history. And as you know, Haiti is a product of, uh, you know, the colonial history and slavery, plantation society with an, act, uh, uh, an extraordinary hell context for Haitians, for, for, the, uh, for, uh, for the slaves. When Haiti became independent, when Haiti organized the revolution, it wasn't a revolt, it was a revolution. And uh, they organized the revolutions in order to not just proclaim that Haiti was independent, you know, from bondage and slavery. But humankind, wherever you are, wherever you live, you should be free. You should be able to imagine the future, think about your daily life, provide for who depends on you, and then think about the future in a way that you can, you know, leave your positive mark on earth. When Haiti took his freedom, we had the, the revolution. It was a huge challenge for the United States and all the Western powers. But let's face it, a revolution has happened. Nobody, uh, no power from outside has, you know, remote control uh, access over what was going on in the revolution. A, 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 a population that has been kept under bondage now is, is creating the path for liberation for its own people, for its own to take itself in charge and to think about the possibility of having a sovereign nation, a sovereign society. This has scared the hell out of all the power in the world. Great Britain, was, which was you know, a, a, a global empire. The United States was a slave empire. Well, it wasn't an empire yet, but it was emerging you know, as, as a new slave, a, 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 you know, esclavagist country. And Europe, all those countries, including Latin America, Latin American countries, saw in the revolution a challenge. So what was happening since the revolution in 1804 was that all the international politics have been to contain Haiti. First, hmm. that means that to prevent a spillover of the revolution from Haiti to Latin America, from Haiti to the Caribbean, from Haiti to the United States. That's the first thing. Because here too, we were having enslaved individuals, enslaved people, and the plantation, you know, negative and plantation structure was what maintained, you know, the whole foundations of American society. So they have to prevent that. Second, they had to show that uh, Haiti's governance will never be something that will be fulfilled. Why? Hmm. Because if Haiti can govern itself, that would mean that Black Americans also can take their own freedom and they can, you know, call for self, you know, self-governance. Wow. Countries in, in, in Africa can also claim for self-governance, can talk about sovereignty. Other countries under subjugations can do that. So the Western powers, it's not just a United States issue, the Western powers, they organize a systematic and a kind of concerted effort to knock out all positive effort of governance that would come out of Haiti because it will be a bad example. And then they have to show the world that these niggers, between quote, do not know how to govern and therefore 
they are not deemed to civilization and they cannot claim you know the same right as a white person a European can claim and then they are the one to rule us not us to rule ourselves so now this would be a simple story if it was just the foreigners preventing Haiti from building a society unfortunately the way domination works is that it triggered down through a series of layers of people who have benefited from the system including blacks themselves who became free and bringing people who became the people who invested in the state, who control the state. So what Haiti has done, those who have been able to control the state claim that they are the people who carry the legacies of civilization, the legacies of Western uh, Europe, the legacies you know, of the colonizer. So they become colonizers of their own people. Mm. So Haitians governance, since the beginning, Haitian uh, governance that was you know, codified through the state was a governance that was against the nation. You have the nation in one way, you have the state in one way. And the state's challenge in Haiti has always been to find ways to continue to maintain the subjugation of those who were former slaves. And as a result, what will happen? We will develop a political system that is unstable because we fought for freedom, but we never achieve equality. So some people translate freedom in terms of the right to govern. So you have a class, a dominant class in Haiti that are composed that is composed of both mulattoes, and I, it's important that I, I insist in the color tone, and the blacks. So the blacks and mulattoes privilege, they fight among themselves to know who has the right to rule the rest. That's the first time. Second, they fight among themselves to know who will the Westerners use as the, 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 the conduit of Western power. So they'll become the representation of the master in the country. So wow. throughout Haiti's history, until you know, we came to recently to, you know, to all the movement that happens until we have US occupation, Haiti was a, 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 a kind of, Haiti has developed an internal colonization using the same resources of the, politi- of, of, of the people and the same resources that people put available for everybody and then resources them for a little group. And around that, you have the Western powers that reinforce these people, particularly when we come to the 20th century with the United States, we have the, the, the United States invasion in, at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And what they have done, they have reorganized the country they have reshaped the country, wired the country in a way that we remain totally dependent. So a political class in Haiti will take a political decision only if Washington tells them to take that decision. Okay? And, and this irrespective of who you are talking to, whether it's black or it is white, whether it's in the left, some of the left, not everybody, but whether it is in the right, certainly in the right. So in Haiti, every single people fighting for power you know, has a white Westerner behind him or behind her to defend, to intervene whenever they lose power in the name of human rights, they will intervene to restore exactly the very same people that have been committing the problems. So recently what had happened since Duvalier regime fell, you had had a succession of governments that happened, you know, that emerged in Haiti. And all these successions of governments until we came to Aristide, have been successions of government that was supported by the United States. And when the United States doesn't support you, like it was in the case of Aristide, what they do, they destabilize you and they destroy you. And after Aristide, 
they organize themselves in order to have United Nations, you know, taking the role of the e, e, occupier for, for reconstruction. Reconstruction was never done. And what, what the United Nations has done instead through minister was to create puppet government, governments from Martellis, the former president mm-hmm. before, the, the one who was right. king, and who gave us this one. And all of this with the consent of Washington. All of this with the consent of the United States. So that's the situation we are in. Now, now, Professor, you just outlined a whole universe of, of obstacles uh, in, in the Haitian peoples, in the people's way from the assassination of the president, right? You had the, the dissolution of the legislature. I think you said the Supreme Court justice, he died of COVID recently. You have the global community sort of just continuing to, to step on Haiti's throat, if you will, keep them suppressed. And then you have the internal fighting among the different classes so let me ask you, in your opinion, and, and, you know, after this question, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your group, because you are on the ground in Haiti, your group. What needs to happen in Haiti? What needs to happen in Haiti is a, is a very important question that calls for a realistic approach here, because you, we have to know who are the power, who are the players at play. First, the international community is a huge player in this game, because we know a, as a neo-colonized country and a, a, a politics within the nation states, you know, do not ha- does not happen just because of the wants of those who are in that nation states. So we have to count on international community. What do I mean? I talked about a first the United States because that's the global power and that's the power that has the capillary power to reach whoever, you know, the U.S. wants to reach. And the U.S., again, because the U.S., in one way or another, you know, has leverage in relation, uh, as, as leverage in the game, in the sense that all groups or parties or institutions in Haiti, you know, in one way or another, they receive their money, their visa, you know, their children go to school in the United States. The United States is the lifeline. So there is no choice on that one. And beside, we have a huge Haitian diaspora, which I will talk about that later. Second, you have also a United Nations. Although United Nations, you know, didn't do what they came to do in Haiti, we have no choice. United Nations is the global institution, you know, that they, that has the legal framework that of which Haiti is member of. Haiti participated in the construction of this legal form. So Haiti has the responsibility to guarantee the rights of his citizen, to guarantee the lives of his citizen, and to create space so then his citizen can, can blossom. So United Nations has coercive power against Haiti, not because of the fact that uh, we are calling for United Nations to tell Haiti what to do, but we are calling on United Nations to reinforce, to help Haiti reinforce the institution for which Haiti signed off for. So United Nations can do things, particularly because they are also underground with minigist. You also have, of course, fundamentally, the main actors here are the Haitians themselves. The first, we have the, those remnants of the government. There is no choice. We have to address the situation immediately. So those who are in power now, regardless if they are illegitimate or not, you know, regardless our position, political position in relation to them, they are the ones controlling the police they are the one controlling the admi- public administration and so forth and so on. So they are an actor. Second, you have different sectors in the private sectors. 
including those big, you know, uh, networks of uh, of families that are responsible for where the country is at the first place. We have no choice. We have to dialogue with them. Okay. And third, the political parties. The political parties all are fragmented in Haiti. You know, you have as many political parties as you have aspire, a, 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 a people aspiring for being president. But these are mm-hmm. the reality that we have. We have to, to learn to sit down with those actors. And third, we have the community-based organizations. Most of the things that have been done in Haiti have always been done without Haitians themselves, without community-based organizations, human rights organizations, business organizations, students organizations, churches, you know, all those institutions that are vital for the country, okay? So what can happen is for the United Nations to create a conduit. I'm not saying for United Nations to go back to Haiti because I just told you exactly what happened. If we are expecting United Nations to save Haiti, so Haiti is already dead. Right. So we are saying that for the United Nations to use its authority to create the conduit and the United States to use its power at least for one time for good in relation to Haiti, <laughs> to engage Haiti in a different base, not to impose Haiti what he tries to do, but to lead Haiti to do, to sit together. We need that. And third, we need those forces also. And those forces that are the forces that we call the Western forces that are friends of Haiti, uh, to be able to provide the support for the Haitian National Police because we are dealing in Haiti with more than 165 gangs, criminal gangs and political gangs, and all of them are armed. And the police in Haiti is so corrupt and so weak. Those good guys who are in the police, they are not enough. So they need some support, policial support, in order for them to do their work to reinforce the institutions. So those steps are not difficult, but I doubt that they will happen. Why? Because the United States are going to have election in two years, in less than two years. The Democrats, you know, are very fragile. The position of the Democrats of Biden's in power is very fragile. And Haiti is a hot potato. They don't want to give the, 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 the Republican ammunition. So then, you know, you know, Haiti can become a problem for them. So up to now, the United States has no strategy in relation to Haiti. Out to the moment I'm talking to you, they have no strategy. What to do? But the political courage for the Biden administration to take a stand and then to engage Haiti on a different basis, not sending soldiers in Haiti. We don't want their soldiers. It's not the point here. But we want police. We want to train police. We want to have forces to back up our police officers so then they can dismantle the gangs. But this decision, will it be done? I'm not sure. United Nations also, I don't either. I don't think that will take the decision. And you know why? Because... The legacy United Nations left to Haiti is a legacy of cholera with more than one million people affected. They have promised that they were going to, you know, a, a, a give some financial support to, to the people who were affected. And that was never done except for little small projects that they have put forward. The United Nations didn't take its responsibility. The other problem that the United Nations left us is a bunch of soldiers that let a bunch of pregnant girls, a, you know, a, a sexual violence and all of these things. But still, again, we have to work with what we have. United Nations has the obligation to force Haiti to reinforce its institutions by using the mini just mechanism it has in Haiti, reinforce its objective, reinforce its, 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 its mandate so that it can accompany a, the country, you know, for good. And what are the forces that we have? We have the Haitian diaspora, which is extremely fragmented. But still, Asian diaspora exists. 
in the United, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, particularly in France. There are a lot of organizations of Asian diaspora. In this dialogue, we need to engage all those actors in order for Haiti to at least stabilize the situation. And then we can breathe to see how we are going to reimagine the future of the country. Well, Professor, we can't thank you enough for such critical insights and, and just, you know, helping educate and teach all the listeners and, and viewers that we have here. Again, it's, it's uh, you just don't get that, that depth uh, hearing a, you know, 30-second news bit on mainstream media about Haiti. So uh, we're, we're on time here now. Uh, we're up on the hour. So um, I just want to thank you again from the whole Newsbeat crew. And we're sharing links to your group. Um, with, uh, with the viewers, once again, Dr. Lewis Hearns, Marcellin is a professor of anthropology and director of global health studies at the University of Miami. And he's also executive committee chair and chancellor of the Inter-University Institute for Research and Development. And we're sharing those links. Professor, thank you again. And thank you for this opportunity. Good work. All right. Wow. I learned a lot. And I appreciate the time and depth uh, because, as you said, Chris, you don't get that on your 30-second news bites. And I suspect you won't get it on your Sunday morning shows on cable, even though by Sunday it'll probably be forgotten about. So we do it here this week in social justice. Thank you to the professor. Thank you to you gentlemen for rocking for us. Amazing interview. I mean, there's just so much yeah. there. I mean, yep. Yeah, the one thing to just leave it with is that these uh, political, major political events obviously don't happen in a vacuum. And he was able to connect um, basically colonial legacy to this point in time, which is uh, remarkable to me. And, and, and again, the, the U S I mean, we have been so involved in Haiti. Um, you know, there's billions of humanitarian aid that we, we've sent, um, mm. you know, we occupied Haiti. Um, and so the things that are happening now in Haiti, um, are a result of some of our involvement, you know, and people need to know that. Indeed. Like you said, the whole, the whole global community is stepping on their throat, trying to, you know, suppress them. Uh, no change is ever going to happen unless the, the full the full story is told. Well, that is right. And that's what we try to do. So thank you, uh, gentlemen, for that astounding uh, interview. Thank you to the professor, Dr. Uh, Marcelin, for uh, joining us. And uh, again, to anyone listening, uh, more information can be found uh, at the organization. Uh, it's the Inter-University Institute for Research and Development at I-N-U-R-E-D dot Org. I-N-U-R-E-D dot org. Like injured without the J dot org. So there's that. Uh, okay. Inured. I'm, I'm inured with you. No, that's not. Uh, you ignore me. No, I don't know. No, I can't find a, a word that works. Uh, in the meantime, in between time, uh, just to remind folks who are listening on the podcast feed, uh, we are uh, doing this live video stream with the guests that you hear Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern on our uh, social media channels. You can go to usnewsbeat.com slash twizzage, T-W-I-S-J, this week in social justice, or usnewsbeat.com slash watch. I think it'll take you to the same place uh, to get the uh, uh, links to our previous shows. It's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, and it's on Twitch. But all of those things are there. usnewsbeat.com slash twizzage <laughs> this week in social justice. 
And if you're watching, please do uh, subscribe to Newsbeat on your podcast or streaming app. We are, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, Stitcher, um, Spotify, of course, uh, Joe's podcast app. Uh, there's a guy named Joe, and he just has a podcast app, and there's only one podcast on there. It's ours. Uh, so you can go there as well. Uh, shouts again to uh, the band called Fuse. I am hiding out in the uh, the Honeycomb hideout for the band called Fuse in uh, in an undisclosed location, uh, and I'm uh, broadcasting from there. You guys are still where you normally were. Shouts to the lavender in your background, uh, Rashad. It's gone because it looked like I was like I had Groot growing out of my head. <laughs> you are Groot. Uh, so uh, let's lastly close this out with our uh, super cool segments. Uh, we're going to look at the past and then look at the future. Uh, so let's go news beat the past. Yeah, so I'll take the past. Um, just so keeping in line with uh, what we had just said of shining a light on on uh, injustices uh, that that uh, many may not know about. Um, July 11th is the anniversary of the Srebrenica genocide. And, 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 you know, for people who don't know what that is, uh, back in 1995, uh, during the Bosnian War, there was, you know, thousands upon thousands. In, th- in this particular episode uh, of that conflict, uh, I think it's estimated to be about 10,000 um, uh, men, men and boys who were, who were put to death, uh, during this. And, and, you know, um, every couple of years they discover and they identify more victims. And I saw a news, uh, Casa just came across today about 19 more victims that were identified. So, um, I thought it was worth mentioning, mentioning here. Absolutely. Uh, um, and some you know things we don't necessarily uh, get enough information about. Yeah, um, and just a, a, a second part of that um, was that in July of 1967 was the convening of the Kerner Commission here in the United States uh, to investigate the reasons for the mass rebellions across the country at the time, and um, that is a topic that we've covered in several episodes. Uh, Manny, you mentioned one at the at the top of the hour that featured the band called band called Fused, and uh, the, and uh, the the conclusion of that report was that um, it was systemic racism um, and oppression, and if it was not addressed, there would be a creation of a, of two different Americas. Uh, now we did a follow up on the 50th anniversary of that in 2018, and it basically said nothing's changed. You know, so I think it, it, think it even said things that got worse, right? Things that got worse. Was that? Yes, um, Silent Night. Who? Uh, <laughs> who, who He's that was background. me. That was me. I was on that episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because we mix, we mix our high, highfalutin, high energy, high level journalism with music and original lyrical contributions by incredible independent hip hop artists uh, to punctuate and uh, uh, exe- you know uh, exclamation put exclamation points on these issues. This is a crazy, uh, this was a crazy episode. I do encourage people to look back through our archives. If you haven't seen it, you can go to usnewsbeat.com, go to episodes, you can scroll through, or you can look on our podcast feed, go back. Uh, it's called America, even more quote, separate and unequal. And 
you know, there's a lot of people who will argue for well, there's people who argue for a post-racial America, which is nonsense. But there are people who argue, say, look, things still have a long way to go, but we're so much better off than we were back during the civil rights and da da da. And maybe at the surface, maybe what you see on TV every night, maybe what you see, you know, uh, you know, enough people being able to make it despite circumstances. Uh, some of that surface level stuff can fool you, confuse you, uh, bamboozle you. But if you look at the data, as we talked about, if you look at some of the real ingrained uh, 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 systems in place and the results of those systems, you will see, as we evidenced in the Kerner Report 50 years later, that things are not really better than they were, even though supposedly all this progress has been made. Ironically, you can't teach any of this in the schools because critical race theory, but whatever. Uh, we'll come back to that some other time. Uh, but the fact is a fact, and if you can't learn it in the school, you can learn it on Newsbeat. Go check it out. It's on the screen. Kerner Report 50 years later, America is even more separate and unequal. I had to plug our own coverage of this topic. So thank you, Chris, for reminding us uh, that it exists and that it is out there to inform, educate, and entertain in some way, which is weird to think that the news can entertain you, but we make the news sound really freaking good. So, news beat. Yeah. Hip, hip, hooray. Great. Are we at the right. future now? I was, just, <clears throat> I was cheerleading for us. I'm sorry. I get it. You know, We're going to the future. Future! All right. Really quick. Um, this caught my eye. I think yesterday, Representative Katie Porter um, had this op-ed in the New York Times called A Mental Health Crisis is Not a Crime. So this is an issue we covered extensively on Newsbeat. Um, yep. I think it was called Mentally Ill and Incarcerated. And yep. it just showed <clears throat> how mental illness fuels the prison population. It's um, it's incredible when you look at some of the numbers of the people who are in prison and suffering from mental health. Um, at the time, what we reported was there are 10 times more people with a serious mental illness wow. currently incarcerated than in state hospitals. So the reason we bring that back, uh, I bring that up, not just to mention our episode, but is to note that Katie Porter is also the sponsor of a, I, I would say a hugely important bill in Congress called the Mental Health Justice Act of 2021. Mm. And what it would basically do is it would provide federal funding, grant funding, to states and local communities uh, to help them hire, train, um, and and send out mental health professionals to respond to uh, in lieu of law enforcement um, to emergency situations. So this is obviously huge because there's all there's so much contact um, of people suffering from mental illnesses with police. We hear all the time a family yeah. member calling the cops, and they somehow then die or wound or wounded tragically. Um, from their interaction with the police. This instead would send uh, mental health professionals there using federal funding. It seems like a no brainer. It'll probably won't pass because Congress is spineless, um, but I hope <laughs> it does. So definitely keep an eye out on this bill. And if you do work in some fields where uh, you can advocate for this, definitely do because I, this, is a, this is hugely important when you talk about criminal justice reform. Yeah, and can I tell you, we have the link, uh, I think we shared it, uh, uh, to the to the bill, yes. To the to the actual yep. bill. Can I'm going to challenge our listeners. Uh, I would love for you to read a bill. Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you read bills. I don't know. I don't <laughs> read bills very often. Um, I find that the synopsis does just fine <laughs> for me personally. Um, but we're linking to the bill. 
And I think it's important that some of us take a little more time to look at what's in these bills and learn the vernacular of lawmaking. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to read this bill and come back next week and report to you what I thought. Um, because we talk about it, we mention it, we say it's not going to pass, and I want to know what's in it. I want to know what we could have had, what we should have, what's being thrown into. We hear about all this you know, stuff being thrown into all these bills. So I challenge people to spend a little more time uh, actually reading the bills that are being voted on by the people that we supposedly vote into office. Uh, we vote them into office. I don't mean to say supposedly, and then you tell me, oh, maybe we didn't vote them. Maybe the election was great. Well, no, there's, no. You know, Exxon, who knows? Right, exactly. So I'm just saying, just a little, you know, many thing is I'm going to read this damn bill because uh, I'd like to know what's in the bill. And we give you the link to the bill so we make it easier. There's actually bills. Like when we say there's a bill, there's actually, you can actually read the bill. Anyway, thank you uh, for, for that. Uh, Katie Porter is a beast. Katie Porter is awesome. I mean, what? the way she holds corporate executives feet to the fire. Uh, All right. Incredible. That is the past and the present or the future. Future. I guess the present. And the present. Is- Present future. I guess the present is us now. And that's it. This is this week of social justice. I think we're done. What an amazing, comprehensive look at the uh, uh, the issues affecting us uh, in Haiti, how we've been intertwined with that country's history for a long time, how it will not stop. Uh, as uh, the great uh, Mr. Sean Puff Daddy Combs once said, can't stop, won't stop, which seems to be, look, I'm doing an Ari Melber. Yeah. I'm doing it right. Come on, man. I, I was doing this 10 years before Ari Melvin. I love how SK is like your, your late night show psychic. Yes, yeah. He's like, <laughs> we yeah, need this right, more right. often. I mean, I was doing Ari Melber when Ari Melber was still in J school, bruh. So take that, Ari Melber, with your rap euphemisms intertwined in your whatever. Ari Melber's fine with me. I don't care. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Um, but the fact remains that we are your hip hop infused. Uh, source for social justice journalism mixed with music. Check out our podcast feed, Newsbeat, to find out why we were the 2018 Journalism Podcast of the Year, New York Press Club, 2019, 2020, and probably 2021, 22, 2023 uh, Journalism Podcast of the Year, uh, PCLI, Society of Professional Journalists. That's right, a podcast about social justice with a bunch of rapping ass rappers in it. Journalism Podcast of the Year. There are some other outlets you might have heard of on that list including the what's it the the new york tomes the new the new york times Timez. yeah the new york Timez, uh and the i think um the walk street journal yeah the walk street journal i don't know I, i'm not sure maybe uh some other state but uh those places lost because we're better anyway i'm just bragging about us i like cheerleading um that's it guys i think we're done am i missing anything any last words uh, anyone have anything to say no, I think we covered a lot of bases. I, I'm sort of exhausted. I Man, listen, long show. Uh, if you're tuning in at the end, go to usnewsbeat.com, subscribe to the podcast. You'll get the podcast feed as well as our full in-depth award-winning episodes. Uh, and uh, you can check us out on various places online, US Newsbeat, wherever you type the things. My name is Manny Faces. I am the, uh, well, doesn't matter. I run shit around here. It's my man, Chris. My man, Rashad, also run things. Uh, we make all this happen. We'll be here next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. I will have a very, very minimalistic background because I'm packing and moving, and I will have no fun stuff in the background. Tonight, I was at the Fuse, uh, Banco Fuse headquarters, uh, deep in the, in the bowels of New Jersey. Thank you, 
thank you to them for hosting me and letting me rock with y'all tonight. Thank you, Chris and Rashad, for your work. And I will see y'all tomorrow night in New York Raining City. Oh, snap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peace and love to everyone checking us out. Uh, we'll be here next Wednesday, God willing. Uh, do check out all our stuff. We love you. Thank you for listening. Peace and love. We're out. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News.